This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Haffel. Federal environmental agencies and programs stand to lose a lot under President Donald Trump's proposed budget. One of the biggest losers is the Environmental Protection Agency, which would lose 31 percent of its funding. CPR's environment reporter Grace Hood is here to fill us in on all the details and what that could mean for Colorado. Hi, Grace. Hey there. Well, let's start with what the EPA does. Well, I think probably a a bigger question is, what does the EPA not do in the realm of the environment? EPA regulates safe drinking water, air quality. They give a lot of money to states like Colorado. Uh, You know, another key thing is that they step in and do some jobs that states can't do. For example, um, this week I learned when I was doing my research that the EPA runs Wyoming's drinking water program. Hmm. They also do a lot of environmental cleanup. I met Carol Campbell earlier this week. She worked for the EPA for three decades and ended her career as an assistant regional administrator in the Denver office. And she spoke at this Fort Collins rally I went to earlier this week about the importance of the EPA. She was answering this very question, what does the EPA do? The Superfund program. How about the Arsenal cleanup? The California Gulch cleanup? The Rocky Flats cleanup? Who would have done that if EPA wasn't around? The Brownfields program. We wouldn't have a course filled if the Brownfields program hadn't cleaned that up and then built the stadium. Campbell and about 90 other retired EPA workers have actually formed this nonprofit. It's called Save the EPA, and they did that in response to Donald Trump's cuts. So where do you see the biggest impact if this budget plan is realized? I think one of the first places to look is the Region 8 office in uh, based in Denver. It covers states like Utah and Wyoming, and it's home to about 600 employees. Trump's budget plan calls for reducing one in five jobs across the EPA. So So inside the Denver office, there could be more than 100 workers who lose their jobs. How is this news affecting people at that office? That's a great question. I mean, a key issue right now, I think, is morale. Uh, Another person I met this Fort Collins rally is Mark Alston. He worked inside the EPA Denver office for three decades and started off his career during the Reagan administration. And, you know, he really compared Reagan era cuts, which were pretty significant to what Trump wants to do now. Take a listen to what he had to say. I think the fear level is higher now than it was then. So and it's it's just sad to see people who have invested their whole careers now being fearful of doing their jobs when they're working on behalf of the American public. And, you know, Alston said that the stakes are really higher now compared to the Reagan administration. And that's really because of climate change. We know it's happening and Trump wants to gut a lot of the climate change programs inside the EPA. What would happen to the EPA's climate change programs under this budget proposal? Well, you know, we're looking at about $100 million worth of cuts uh, to the climate change programs. Probably the biggest ticket item is uh, discontinuing funding for the Clean Power Plan. Now, this is President Obama's signature uh, climate change achievement. Uh, it really reduces uh, emissions at coal-fired power plants. Uh, Trump is also seeking to get rid of international climate change programs, climate change research. And, you know, my understanding, based on the research I've done, is that a lot of these climate change programs are run out of Washington, D.C. But, you know, there's a cost if climate change is not curbed here in Colorado. So what is happening here in Colorado with climate change? We've already seen some effects. Statewide average temperatures are two degrees warmer compared to 30 years ago. Snowmelt is happening a lot earlier across Colorado and the West. Um, Energy efficiency programs, you know, those are really key to curbing climate change. And, um, you know, they would take a hit under Trump's proposed cuts. Trump is 
proposing eliminating Energy Star. This is um, a program you may have seen if you shop for appliances. Oh, yeah, you uh, see a sticker on, on, on the refrigerator or on the stove or something exactly. like that. Exactly. Yeah. That would go away under Trump's proposed cuts. What about money? the EPA sends to Colorado. Could the state see reduced funding uh, in that way? Well, I think that's another really big thing to watch. The Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment gets about one third of its budget from the EPA. And Trump said yesterday in this proposed budget that he wants to cut funding um, for these state programs more than 40 percent. Now, I expect this number to change. It's probably going to go down. Um, You know, Congress is going to start hashing out the details of the budget. So we probably will see that number decrease. But You know, we did hear from the state yesterday. They say they're concerned because these proposed funding cuts would really impact every program, environmental program the state has, and really touch all four corners of the state. And then there's this big fear that you hear from um, some environmental groups that reduced funding to states could really lead to this thing that they're calling a race to the bottom. A race to the bottom. What What does that mean? Well, you know, this is where states compete for industries and companies by really loosening environmental regulations. Uh, you know, as you may know, Colorado is a purple state. Uh, we have Democratic John, uh, Governor John Hickenlooper at the helm. That likely won't happen here. But a former president of the EPA's local union that I spoke with this week made a really good point. And she said that under this scenario, Colorado should worry about neighboring states, red states like Wyoming or Mexico, loosening rules. And, you know, that dirtier water or air doesn't stop at state lines. So, you know, another state's loosened regulations could be a headache for Colorado. I see. In Colorado, many people link the EPA to the Gold King Mine and Superfund cleanup projects. How would these proposed cuts impact work in this area? Well, EPA designated the Bonita Peak Mining District a couple of years ago. That includes the Gold King Mine and um, dozens of other abandoned mines. And so this is where EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt and Trump really clash on priorities. We know Trump has said that he wants to cut $330 million from the EPA Superfund budget. And this is a budget that's already pretty stressed. Um, Pruitt is on record, however, as saying that uh, to a group of mayors in Washington, D.C., that he wants to maintain uh, the current level of spending for super funds. So, you know, I think a key point here, the key takeaway is that, um, you know, a lot of super fund sites in Region 8 are in low populated areas. So, you know, if there's less money to go around, if there is a cut to the super fund program, EPA will likely prioritize super fund sites that have the highest human health risk to the most people. So, you know, it p- might be potentially hard for a Gold King site to compete for funding with a large super fund area in, say, New York City that poses an immediate health risk. And there are other federal environmental agencies like the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and federal labs like the National Renewable Energy Lab. What kind of cuts are you seeing there? Well, you know, this budget is pretty top line. So uh, did look a little bit at NOAA's budget. And we saw a coastal grant program under NOAA that Trump wants to cut. And that helps coastal communities adapt to climate change and some of the effects there. One of the things we don't know at this point is what funding would look like for the NOAA Boulder Lab. A lot of employees there. And, you know, it's also too early at this point to really say what funding might look like at NREL. Um, Although President Trump 
has said, um, you know, in terms of federal lab research within the Department of Energy, that he wants to prioritize early stage research over later stage research. And, you know, he sees this uh, really as less focus on the commercialization of energy technologies. So, you know, I think really we'll see in the coming months what this might mean for NREL and the Boulder NOAA Lab. So a lot of information here. But uh, uh, what's next with the president's proposed budget? Well, okay, so really important point here is that this is far from the final word. This is really just a proposal. Really, in a lot of ways, this is the first step. So um, what we're expecting to see next is some Republicans and pretty much most Democrats uh, to we're expecting them to oppose these steep cuts. And uh, kind of the long term deadline is October 1st. That's when the new fiscal year starts. So they're working towards that. But really start paying attention again um, in April, towards the end of April. That's when a lot of this budget gets finalized. And, um, you know, there's this temporary funding bill that expires in April as well. So if Congress and the president can't reach an agreement, you can expect talk of maybe a potential government shutdown. And that could happen starting on April 29th. Informative always. Grace Hood, thanks so much. Thank you. That's CPR's environment reporter, Grace Hood, talking about a 31 percent budget cut to the EPA proposed by President Donald Trump. 2016 marked another record-breaking year for CO2 levels in our atmosphere. That's from a new report by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. This comes right after Scott Pruitt, chief of the Environmental Protection Agency, denied the significance of CO2 as a factor in global warming. Boulder scientist Peter Tons leads NOAA's Global Greenhouse Gas Reference Network, which produced the report. Peter, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. First, why should people pay attention to CO2 levels at all? CO2 is the main greenhouse gas that is causing climate change. About two-thirds of climate forcing, it is called, the change in greenhouse gases that causes the climate to warm, two-thirds of that is caused by CO2 alone. So a a pretty standard amount there. Um, The rise in carbon dioxide levels reported last year matched the record-breaking rise seen the previous year. It's now at 405.1 parts per million. Can you put that number into context? What does that mean? Um, Before the rise of uh, industrial civilization, say, really starting in the early 19th century, CO2 levels were 280 parts per million. And they had been 280 parts per million for the last 11,000 years, what we call the Holocene, the current warm climate period we're in. Before that, CO2 fluctuated between 180 and 280 parts per million during the last 800,000 years. And now, suddenly, it's up over 400 ppm. It's really totally new for the Earth system. This happened very rapidly especially in the last few decades, and it is clearly caused by industrial civilization, by our burning of coal, oil, and natural gas, and one of the main, or actually the main combustion product is carbon dioxide, and it accumulates in the atmosphere and oceans. So how are these CO2 measurements gathered? And we have a global network. Well, first of all, these measurements started... In 1958, that was by David Keeling of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And every single year, we could see go up at Mauna Loa. 
not a single year that it went down. And the rate of increase has increased also. So it's now rising faster than it was when Dave Keeling started these measurements. And the reason is, of course, that we're burning more and more. So fossil fuel burning currently is also at a record high. Now, we not only measure at Mauna Loa. That's, uh, Mauna Loa is uh, on the island of Hawaii. It's close to the summit of a volcano called Mauna Loa. And NOAA has an observatory there. We gather measurements from about 100 other sites all over the world. And uh, this is a network where people take air samples for us and they send them to us where we measure them. And then we send these flasks back to them and they take new samples in the same flask so they recirculate. And uh, so we sample, we measure about 300 of these flasks per week. And with that, we can see that the CO2 increase at Mount Loa is actually global. It happens everywhere. We can also, we also measure other greenhouse gases. So we keep track of basically climate forcing, not only by CO2, but also by methane, nitrous oxide, and a lot of purely man-made gases. And with a few exceptions, they're all going up. And, and that has happened recently. And that's, you know, CO2 levels yeah. have increased substantially over the last 250 years, you're, you're saying. Yeah, so, you know, you have to realize that half of all the fossil fuel emissions of, of CO2 uh, since pre-industrial times, so the half of the total mankind has emitted over, over time, took place since 1990. So the rise is especially sharp in the last several decades. But is there and, other evidence that this is happening? Is, is it all because of, of human activities? Uh, yes. The answer is yes. Uh, CO2 started going up actually... Uh, before fossil fuel burning itself was the main cause, but it was going up because mankind then then was destroying forests. We were, you know, collectively, we were cutting forests to make place for agriculture. Deforestation, right. Deforestation. And it was greatly accelerated by mechanization, by machines that we were running. But the machines then, and there were not as many, and, you know, they were not burning as much as they are today. So fossil fuels, the, you know, running the machinery, like driving our cars, making electricity, etc., all of that overtook uh, deforestation processes somewhere in the early 20th century. And since the 19, since 1950, fossil fuel burning has really dominated the carbon cycle. Can this trend? be reversed? Is there some way to reduce CO2 in our atmosphere? I'm assuming it's not as easy as, as turning off your car or shutting off a faucet. It, 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 there, there seems to be something that has to happen on a global scale. Oh, yeah. So it clearly is a global problem uh, because whatever you emit here, say, a very small portion of that will end up in Antarctica. So emissions that happen anywhere will, in about a year's time, be spread almost uniformly over the entire world. So if we were to emit less and China, China's emissions would go up, then, you know, total emissions would go up and the rate of CO2 increase, would, we would measure that in the atmosphere. So everybody has to participate. Now, you can say that makes it hard. Right. Uh, 
Yes, <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> it is hard to do. Of course, when you you can also look take a positive look at it. Here, here is a problem where that requires global cooperation, and for a very positive cause, namely avoiding climate change to basically save our butt collectively. And you know, instead of fighting wars, maybe we can uh, support each other in actually doing what needs to be done. But but I, I'm also thinking about, let's say, the smog in China or India and, and how that ends up here in, in Colorado's backyard. Uh, well, CO2 spreads more evenly than smog. You know, the, the, the residence time or lifetime of these particles in the atmosphere is approximately one week. Hmm. And so some of it reaches the United States, for example, from China, but most of it does not. It falls out of the atmosphere before it gets to us. But CO2 actually uh, goes everywhere. I, I want to talk briefly about the new EPA chief, Scott Pruitt. He recently stated that CO2 might not be a factor in global warming, that, uh, that that's something that he, he may not see as a, as a factor. And the Trump administration... It's playing wrong. It's playing wrong. Uh, you know, we know... You know, we have a very good understanding of the absorption and emission of radiation by molecules. And on that understanding, you know, is based, for example, lasers are based on that understanding. So if you say, oh, I don't believe in that science, then lasers cannot exist. We really understand this stuff. So we can calculate with great confidence how much heat is retained in the atmosphere by these gases. There's no question about that whatsoever. And the amount currently by all the greenhouse gases, you know, the, their enhancements since pre-industrial times, is now 3 watts per square meter average over the entire Earth. Now, how much is 3 watts per square meter? Yeah. It's the same as one and a quarter percent of the total amount of solar radiation that the Earth absorbs. So it's as if the, the, the sun, of course... Uh, you know, fuels or runs our climate. It provides the energy for the winds, etc. And, and <clears throat> so we have sort of revved up the Earth climate engine by one and a quarter percent. Hmm. Now you might say, well, you know, who cares? You know, what would that do? But for example, that, that what does three watt per square meter equate to? It's the same amount. It's the amount of energy over the entire Earth. You know, this this if you. This watt per square meter, so a lot of square meters over your surface. So you multiply that large area by this enhancement <coughs> of watts per square meter, and that is enough energy, for example, to heat the upper 100 meters of all the oceans on the world by 0.6 degree Fahrenheit per year. So slightly more than half a degree Fahrenheit per year. Per year. Per year, yeah. That is the energy that corresponds to three watts per square meter that we are causing collectively. Now, of course, humankind or mankind is doing other things to the atmosphere. We have also been emitting aerosols. We just talked about that. Yeah. Now, aerosols, they provide on balance, they provide cooling. So here, humans are heating the earth, but they're also, by creating pollution, 
partially compensating for that. Compensating for that as well. Now, I, I, briefly, I want to get to a couple other things before we wrap up here. Uh, the Trump administration just announced proposed funding cuts to NOAA's budget. Are you concerned about the scientific work you're doing with this agency? Yeah, if these cuts become a reality, that would create great difficulty for us. Yes. And, and then the change in, in the possible budget to NOAA, what, what could this mean for dealing with the continued increase of CO2 levels in the atmosphere that you're discussing? You know, we're just keeping track of this uh, because this will be what we do is important for to understand how the climate is actually changing. Uh, and so the first thing you need to know is how how different is the forcing of climate change. And we need to keep a record of that. Not only for right now, but also for future generations. Because humankind is actually carrying out a global experiment with the Earth climate system. And so we might actually learn a lot about global climate. But at the same time, of course, it's risky. That's that's clear already. The grand but experiment that you're talking yes, about. Yes, it is a grand experiment. Peter, uh, uh, we, we do have to wrap up, but I, I do yeah. appreciate you being on our show. Okay, my pleasure. Peter Tan leads NOAA's Global Greenhouse Gas Reference Network. It's based in Boulder. NOAA reported record surges in carbon dioxide levels. Coming up, banjo great Bela Fleck has released a new classical concerto with the Colorado Symphony. And of course, it includes a banjo. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Bela Fleck is known for his brilliant banjo skills in genres such as jazz, bluegrass, and classical. The 15-time Grammy winner has just released his second classical album, Juno Concerto, recorded with the Colorado Symphony. Welcome back to Colorado Matters. Good to be here. Thank you. We talked last summer about your reunion show with the Flectones at the 2016 Telluride Bluegrass Festival. Now, you haven't released anything new with them, but you have been working on the second classical concerto, which uh, came out recently. Uh, can you tell us about this new album, which features you playing banjo with the Colorado Symphony? Well, it's a piece I wrote. Um, I wrote it for my son, um, Juno, and uh, I guess... The best way to put it is that my life has changed a lot since having a, a son, and the, the time to work on my kind of crazy, complicated music tends to be after he's asleep. Um, if I want to be part of his life, I don't want to be gone very much. So I've, I've found that uh, composing is a great way to, to, to do that, because I don't need anybody else to be there. I can just, uh, whenever I get some time, I can go to work on this piece. So that's been kind of my labor of love off of the side. Um, but it's uh, it's a whole different way of working from the way I did before I had a, a child. And uh, when you do things in small, 
um, increments of time, you go, I've got 40 minutes. What can I accomplish? Well, maybe I can come up with a counterpart for the, the oboe line in, in movement three. That's a short job. And I go do it and I finish it. The other thing that happens is you get away from it. So you keep coming back to it fresh and you don't lose your overview the way you do when, for instance, you go, I'm going to write for the next three weeks and I'm not going to do anything but write. And I'm going to spend 14 hours a day writing. And I've done that before. And you can kind of get lost can't see the forest for the trees sort of thing. Now, what about this relationship with the Colorado Symphony? Uh, how did that come about? Well, the first time I, I worked with them was a triple concerto that I co-wrote with, with Edgar Meyer and Zakir Hussein, and that was great, and they were, they were wonderful. They did a fantastic job on that piece called The Melody of Rhythm. And then I got the chance to come back with the imposter, and um, they embraced me. They liked. They 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 made me feel really good, and uh, they had a good a good turnout. Came out. It seemed like it was the perfect thing where the orchestra brought people that wouldn't normally come see me, and I brought people that wouldn't co- normally come see the orchestra. And it was a really nice uh, back and forth that way. They seemed to like it enough, and I I I made a crazy request of them: Would they consider going to Telluride, Colorado, to the Bluegrass Festival? Because um, I've got this sort of carte blanche at, at, at Telluride where they ask me, what do you want to do this year? After I mean, I've been going there every year since 1982. Yeah. And, I, and I'm always looking to do something different every year when I go there. And I said to the festival promoter, Craig, I said, I, I don't expect you to be able to do this. But if you could, a crazy, wonderful thing to do would be to bring the Colorado Symphony to Telluride and play the Imposter Concerto. And he said, let's do it. And it, it seemed great to everybody. And we actually... All went up there, play, played a, a classical banjo concerto uh, at the Bluegrass Festival, and knocked people's socks off. So they, it, it was well received. Put us in a good place, it was very well received. It was a knockout. It's probably the most amazing experience I've ever had at Telluride, and, and I've had a lot of amazing experiences there. Um, it was just a trip, and I think everybody was kind of high off of that. And so when the Juno Concerto started to come around, it wasn't called that yet. It was just going to be Bayless Next Concerto. They were excited to be part of it, and they said, we'd love to be the ones to record it. So I'm really proud of it, and in a way, it couldn't be a more perfect place to, to do it. Well, let's hear a little bit of this concerto. It's it's a section from your first movement, and I want to note the banjo doesn't come in until a minute and a half into the piece. distinct sound of the banjo fits with an orchestra. The great thing about the banjo in an orchestra is that no one else in the orchestra sounds like it. And so I think that's, you know, the orchestra is this huge group of all of these different sounding instruments that each bring their own uh, their own timbre and their, their own abilities. Uh, some instruments can play really fast, like the strings, and some instruments can play, you know, long held notes and really, really low notes. You know, you've got the percussion section that does things that no one else can do. So that's what an orchestra is. So why couldn't a banjo be in an orchestra? It's certainly going to bring something that nobody else has. 
Um, although I did avoid um, writing with harp and piano because they're the most similar to the banjo in my mind. They ripple like a banjo does best. And, and I figured we didn't need confusion in that. But I think it works. And I think there's a lot of instruments that, you know, um, think about marimba as a, as a regular part of uh, classical music. Well, that's an African instrument. And that's right. And the, and the banjo has, has African roots, too. I think the more curious thing is like the connotation that the banjo brings when you hear it. Does it make you feel like you're in the in the South? You know, or does it, it is that the automatic thing? Because that's what I was trying to avoid. This is not a bluegrass concerto, and neither was the imposter. I was trying to present it just with its its unique uh, sonic abilities, but without hopefully um, a, a folk or a, a southern point of view. Just just music, you know, the kind of music yeah. I like to write that just falls off the instrument. But but in the third movement, your banjo does get a little bit more twangy. It sounds a little bit more like traditional bluegrass. Some major fans of bluegrass might not be all that into classical music and vice versa. Uh, do you think this crossover teaches fans of both genres to maybe appreciate uh, each other's music a little bit differently? Well, that would be nice. That would be nice. <laughs> um, you, you, you did get me there. You know, there is a more bluegrass than I realized in this piece. I guess I, guess I can't escape it. It's just in my DNA. But um, I think of that fast banjo stuff as actually having a slow, simple melody. That sort of thing, but it, the way that the banjo expresses it was with these cascades of notes. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's in there, and it's it's double time fast, and it's a good thing to do in a third movement. It's what the banjo does really well, also. The, the banjo isn't a particularly loud instrument. Uh, do you find that a struggle uh, for the banjo in this type of setting, with with a bunch of instruments competing for the the same uh, airspace, if you will? Well, there's there's a couple of different strategies for that, um, and one is to thin it out when it's time for for you to do your thing. If you're me, and uh, I learned that from Edgar Meyer because he plays bass, and we talked about. It. He says actually the banjo is much better for a concerto because when I play a bass concerto, I have to make everybody stop playing whenever I play, and when I do, you have to think about whether it's a cello or another bass player in in the group. You know what I mean? So, so he said in a way you have a more you, your instrument cuts through very clearly. Now I do amplify it um, in, in in concerts just simply because I don't want people to say I I couldn't hear you, mm. um, and they do complain if they can, including the orchestra. Um, so we we just put a, a really great sounding funky mic. It's it's called a fathead. It's a, it's a ribbon mic. We put it in front of me. I don't use any monitors or anything like that. And we just pump pump a little bit of just enough to make sure people will hear it. But it's a very analog, warm kind of a sound. There are people that actually uh, uh, get upset when they see that you're mic'd and nobody else is. I've had promoters, you know, when I was playing with the string quartet, uh, Brooklyn Rider, that were really coming from a strong classical point of view, that were upset to see that I, that I was mic'd. And I was just like, well, you know, I get what they're after. There's an aesthetic there that they're trying to protect. I think you got to do what works. Uh, I can't act like a, a classical purist since I'm from outside the world completely, but I just... I just uh, I understand their point of view. Now, you mentioned earlier your your first concerto 
The Imposter. It was released in 2011. Uh, you said at the time that trying your hand at classical music and injecting the banjo into classical music made you feel like an imposter. Do, do you still feel like one mm-hmm. with the second concerto? Have you learned some things? Do you still feel that way? That's a good question. Um, actually, that's part of why I wanted to do another one, is so I wouldn't feel like an imposter. Because now I, I've played the piece so many times, the imposter, and and made so many observations uh, about how the banjo works in that setting, and I understand so much more about what all the instruments do, and what people need to see to feel comfortable. I feel like uh, there's a place for me in that world, and it's m- most everybody has welcomed me with open arms, and I really appreciate that. Uh, because when I f- first uh, wrote The Imposter and we premiered it in Nashville, I was told not to expect to have any more performances of it. And I, I really felt like uh, it ought to be able to get out there and be heard. And, there, are the, the, you know, it seemed like it would, if it worked in Nashville, it would work somewhere else. And, and it turned out that, you know, a lot of orchestras did give me a chance and that generally they were happy with what happened. Um, although a lot of major orchestras didn't and still haven't uh, been open to it. Um, this piece also lets them know that I'm I'm not uh, – it's not a flash-in-the-pan thing. I'm going to keep on writing ban- uh, music for banjo in classical settings uh, for the rest of my life. And so um, you know maybe they'll, maybe they'll like something I do later better. Um, but anyway, there have been a lot of people who have supported it, and I, I appreciate that. And I also understand the ones who don't. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm speaking with Bela Fleck, a world-renowned banjo player. He's released a classical album called Juno Concerto with the Colorado Symphony. Now, the name of the album uh, is Juno Concerto, and it has a child on the front wearing large red sunglasses. That's your son, correct? It is. It is. And why did you name the piece after him? The way I feel justified in calling it the Juno Concerto, because I thought it was a really cool title, and it it felt warm to me. Ever since um, he was born, my whole approach to music has been different. I tour with my wife now so that we can be together as a family. I write music in the spaces when they're asleep, things that are... Uh, that I care about in music are changing because of this relationship with having a son and, you know, taking part in humanity in a whole different way than I ever have before. Because I was just so busy being a musician, a lot of things just weren't important to me. To me, the Juno Concerto is a gift to Juno, as much as that it's not really about him. It's not really like the music inspires Juno, because I had someone listen to it and say, well, that doesn't really remind me of Juno. Well, I said, it's, it's not really... Uh, supposed to. It's uh, it's a piece I wrote for Juno, and everything about it is different from everything I've ever done before because of his existence in the world. Besides including the banjo, what else do you think makes this composition unique? That's maybe for somebody else to say. Um, I try to make every piece uh, different from the ones before, and I try to um, be as fresh when I'm writing and, and, and try new ideas all the time. But I had this conversation with the great Earl Scruggs once, and he said to me that he thought most people only have like a tune or maybe a couple in them. And uh, that was an interesting observation. And and what he's getting at is that a lot of times we tend to write things that are more alike than we realize. And that it's actually hard to get over 
yourself. It's hard to, to escape your own natural inclinations. And maybe you shouldn't. Maybe that's what style is all about. So on one level, I think this is a very different concerto than the first one. And, and there's a lot of growth that I certainly went through to get to the stage of writing it. On another level, it's the kind of music I write. So how different could it be? Bela, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Banjo player Bela Fleck just released his second concerto album, Juno Concerto. It was recorded with the Colorado Symphony. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. If you make it outside this weekend, pay attention to the rocks and tree trunks. You might see a bunch of crusty colored blobs called lichen. They're little organisms made up of an alga and a fungus. Biologist Aaron Tripp says some lichens remind her of fried eggs or pom-poms. Tripp has written a book about a treasure trove of lichens a few minutes away from her office at the University of Colorado in Boulder. It includes two species she says have never been identified before. Aaron, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks to be here. I'll confess when I look at lichens, uh, I pretty much see blotches of colorful stuff on the ground and on rocks. But from a scientific point of view, can you give me a quick explainer? What exactly are lichens? Sure. So first off, that's a good question. I'm glad to start off that way. They're not plants. They're not animals. In fact, it's a obligate symbiotic organism, Ooh. meaning that it's um, it's a relationship that has to contain at least two different evolutionarily unrelated species. So I like to describe it as a funk, as a sandwich, and it's a sandwich where your two slices of bread are the fungus and the peanut butter or the jelly in the middle would be the alga. So is it basically that the fungus is kind of like the house of this and the alga is kind of like the food that it needs? Exactly. And okay. traditionally, this was thought of as a win-win situation, so partnership, where yeah. the alga is making food, it's providing food to the fungus, the fungus is providing the alga a safe space to live. That's been questioned in recent years, and some people think of it more of as a controlled parasitism. But that's the beauty of science. Jury's still out. We're still trying to work on the answer to that. The stuff you talk about together at, uh, at like an ologist's, you know, meetings exactly. and things like that. Yeah. yeah. If the average person visits White Rocks in Boulder, that's mm -hmm. the nature preserve mm -hmm. uh, described in your book, what's going to attract their attention? Um, well, basically, it's one of the first things you'll notice, I would say, that the lichen biota there, so that's kind of the equivalent of the flora or the fauna of the mm. site. Uh, the lichen biota is probably the richest of any group of organisms. Uh, you can't visit white rocks, and for that matter, you can't visit much of Colorado without noticing lichens. In fact, they're one of the most diverse groups of organisms um, anywhere in our state, including at White Rocks and Boulder. And they're all over the rocks and the tree trunks and things like that? That's exactly right, yeah. yeah. But what do you see what, you know, with your lichenologist expertise when you visit the park? Uh, I quickly weed out the common things. You see them, and they're everywhere, and that's the stuff most people notice. Like what? Uh, like um, sort of the big orange things you see all over rocks. People have heard the name Xanthoria or Um I tend to focus on the 
most minute and most inconspicuous things, sort of the things that other people don't notice. But once you put a hand lens around your neck and look, you'll start to notice that it's much richer and much more spectacular than you ever originally thought. So basically, uh, 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 an average person would just see the, the 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 large stuff, but you take this lens and you put it right up against that lichen. And That's right. Yeah, up. I never leave home without it. It's right oh, here, that. underneath and in, in, around my neck, actually. Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's got a nice uh, nice uh, little necklace there attached to that. And yeah, it, opens it makes up it look like jewelry. <laughs> it's, it's really small. Yeah. 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 So that's 14x magnification, and you can see a lot. Why is Colorado an especially hospitable environment for lichen? That's a great question. Well, first off, I'll just focus on Boulder County as one of many spectacular counties in Colorado. But there's very few other places in the country you can visit that have an elevational gradient that ranges from just below 5,000 feet to over 14,000 feet. Uh, that's that's just a tremendous diversity of habitats one can traverse in a very short distance. And it's that microhabitat diversity that creates spaces, and we call them niches in ecology, uh, for lots of different organisms to... to uh, persist. And do they do well in especially harsh situations? Isn't that right? Yeah, that's that's the dogma. And I think there's a lot of reality to it. Um, jury's still out as to why exactly that's the case. But it, it's true that you can visit some of the harshest landscapes or what we think of as harsh. Actually, the lichens are probably quite happy there. But places like the Atacama Desert or places like the Namib Desert and the skeleton coast of Namibia and find nothing but lichens growing there. Nothing else, really. Um, at least that's visible to our naked eye. Um, lichens, the symbiotic relationship that makes up a given lichen, produce that, that lineage as a whole, or it's actually several lineages. Uh, they manufacture hundreds, if not thousands, of different kinds of chemicals that aren't present in any other group of organisms. And those chemicals aren't produced by either of the partners in isolation. So they've... they've um, basically invented a new kind of biochemical uh, machinery, uh, an arsenal, and probably some of that is used to their advantage in order to survive these kinds of harsh landscapes. What, what, what is the higher purpose? Uh, what do they serve? What, what is the purpose for them in this world? <laughs> Nathan, you're not going to like my answer, but I think if you could ask the lichen, they would ask the same question about you. <laughs> what good are you? And that's the first question I get. And I say, well, you know, what good are we? And I really encourage listeners to think about that question. Um, from sort of a scientific standpoint, I can tell you that they function as of sort of hubs of trophic interactions. And so they look small. They look inconspicuous to us. We think they're kind of insignificant for that purpose. But actually, they, they really do serve as a meeting ground for lots of other organisms. So there's things that feed on them. There's things that live inside of them. Um, and they are a hub of different kinds of interactions, of ecological interactions that we're just starting to learn about. And don't they also decompose the, the material that they live on? They, they do. They break down rock and things like that? Absolutely. They, some of those uh, chemi uh, chemicals we were just talking about actually serve to break down parent material. So you think about the process of soil formation. Um, take a degraded landscape or something where it's mm. been heavily polluted, such as some of these smelters in Pennsylvania. Um, you notice sometimes or oftentimes that lichens are the first thing to move in and start oh. breaking down uh, material and forming new soils and sort of they're the start of a new ecosystem in a way. How did you become fascinated by these organisms? Um, gosh, well, first off, I think if you ask any biologist, how did they become interested in something? The minute you look at something under a microscope, the world becomes so much more interesting. Um, and I went to school in the Southern Appalachians, University of North Carolina, Asheville, awesome place to be a biologist. Spent a lot of time romping around Great Smoky Mountains National Park and other places. And uh, you just cannot help but to notice the lichen diversity and abundance in a place like that. And it turns out that Colorado is just as special. 
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News, and we're talking with biologist Erin Tripp of the University of Colorado in Boulder. She's the author of The Field Guide to the Lichens of White Rocks. So we've said this a few times. You're a lichenologist. Uh, how do you explain that to somebody and maybe meet at a cocktail party? <laughs> oh, wow. Um, well, I s- tell them I think that my fundamental role on this planet is to understand the species that surround us. And by understand them, I mean first put a name on them. Um, in order to do science, we have to have a means of communicating. And that starts with names of organisms, scientific names of organisms. So one of my primary roles in this scientific world I'm living in is to accurately delimit the biodiversity that surrounds us. I started in botany, and I'm still a botanist, um, but there's a lot of people doing botany, and there's very, very, very few people actively doing lichenology. So I kind of secondarily uh, moved into this field and um, still doing the same kind of work. Uh, for example, we don't have an updated list of the lichens of Colorado. We don't have an updated list of the lichens of most states in the United States. In contrast, we've had different floras of the state of Colorado or any given state for decades, if not centuries. Uh, So we're so far behind the times in lichenology. In other words, the field just needs a lot of work, and it's work that's been um, sort of delayed at the expense of learning about other kinds of more charismatic organisms first, I suppose. You've written the book about this, um, and it has a photo and a description of each species Mm -hmm. in that park, Mm -hmm. and you've nicknamed every lichen. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's over-easy lichen, for instance, Rocky Mountain sunburn, corn pops, like in the cereal. Why did you get them nicknames? Was it to make them more relatable to to the average reader? Exactly. Um, I like to have fun, you know. Uh, What's what's the what good is living every day unless you have a little bit of fun? Yeah. But you really did touch on an important point. So we use the Latin language in science. But uh, species, in, a dif- in addition to having a formal scientific name, really need a common name. And that's so that we can communicate things about them, That so we can understand um, the, the ecology of any particular species that grows at White Rocks. Um, we're so far, the state of lichenology, as I said, is sort of so far behind that of other fields that we don't have common names for most species. And during your research, you found two species that hadn't been identified anywhere before. You've nicknamed uh, one Timscape after a CU colleague, and you call it a, this is your words, a true charmer. Mm-hmm. Want to tell me what makes a lichen so charming? <laughs> I guess beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but you put a hand lens on it and look at it under magnification, I think you might find it charming too. Uh, th- that particular species you allude to is is um, just really interesting. You know, it just looks like a white blob with black dots on it from a distance, but you get your face down closer to it and maybe look at it in profile. It's got these long, columnar, black fruiting bodies that stick up into space like a three-dimensional object and... Uh, it's just a really magnificent member of the of the genus, yeah. And the other new species you formally identified is nicknamed uh, Dina's digression. Yeah, so uh, Dina Clark and Tim Hogan are two uh, amazing colleagues of mine. They're at the University of Colorado Boulder in the herbarium. They are our collections managers there, and I'm the curator of that collection. Um, I named those two species in honor of Tim and Dina uh, for sort of a lifetime of contributions. Those two individuals are incredible field botanists, and what often happens in a museum is that curators get all the attention when, in fact, the collections managers are the ones that are doing the really uh, the hard work, the grunt work, the behind-the-scenes work that don't get the credit they, they deserve. So it was in part to honor Tim and Dean's contributions specifically uh, for them building all this knowledge about the flora of Colorado, but also more broadly to honor collections managers at worldwide museums. 
Thanks so much for joining us. You bet. Anytime. Erin Tripp is an assistant professor of biology at CU Boulder. Her book is The Field Guide to the Lichens of White Rocks. You can read an excerpt and see pictures of some of the lichens at cprnews.org. And that's our show. Thanks to audio engineer Michael Hughes, director Stephanie Wolf, and producers Michelle P. Fulcher and Shauna Lewis. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day.